Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transverse Myelitis Association's Ask the Expert podcast series. We apologize for the delay. We had some uh, technical difficulties on our end. But today's podcast is entitled, What You Need to Know About Caregiving. My name is Sam Hughes, and I'll be hosting this podcast today. The TMA is a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune disorders. You can learn more about us on our website at myelitis.org. This podcast is being recorded and will be made available on the TMA website for download via iTunes. During the call, if you have any additional questions, you can send a message through the chat option available with GoToWebinar. We want to thank the sponsor of this month's podcast, Alexion. Alexion is a global biopharmaceutical company focused on serving patients with severe and rare disorders through the innovation, development, and commercialization of life-transforming therapeutic products. Their goal to deliver medical breakthroughs where none currently exist is driven by the knowledge that people's lives depend on their work. For today's podcast, we are pleased to be joined by Cindy Colby, Tina Robbins, and Catherine Treadaway. Cindy Colby lives in the Shenandoah Valley, and her memoir, Struggling with Serendipity, will be released this spring. It shares her story of a mom's crisis, a daughter's paralysis, and extraordinary travel. Cindy also has been a caregiver in many different settings and a lifelong disability advocate, even before her daughter Beth's paralysis. She ran a nonprofit, managed group homes, and taught literacy at a state institution. She also writes a weekly blog and has published 48 articles since 2016. Tina Robbins has a bachelor's degree in psychology, and she proceeded on to St. Thomas University School of Law to obtain a law degree and began practicing in the field of domestic relations. Tina practiced in this field exclusively for 15 years with an emphasis on cases involving special needs children. She retired from her law practice in 2012, solely care for her children, including her daughter, Sarah, who was diagnosed with TM at that time. She has been married for 21 years to Jason Robbins, who is a board member for the TMA. Catherine Treadaway received her bachelor's degree in sociology and master of social work at Louisiana State University. She received her board certification in 1998 from the Louisiana State Board of Board Certified Social Work Examiners. Catherine has been at the Multiple Sclerosis and Neuroimmunology Program at UT Southwestern since September 2000. She assists patients, both adults and children, by serving as their advocate, locating resources, providing counseling, support, and information, and arranging home and outpatient care. Welcome, and thank you all for joining us today. Now, before we jump into the questions from the community, I wanted to turn it over um, back to the three uh, uh, expert panelists today to discuss in a little bit more detail their background and experience and some formal training in uh, um, caregiving. And so we'll start uh, from the bottom of the intros that I did up. So Catherine, um, if you want to to start and just give us a little bit more background on yourself and and, um, your experience with caregiving. Okay. Well, like Sam said, I've been working here since 2002, and I work in the adult clinic and the children's clinic. Um, But a couple of, I guess, 2004, my daughter was born. I was working here at the time, um, and we knew that she possibly was going to have this rare disorder called tuberous sclerosis which she was diagnosed with when she was four months old. And she has intractable seizures because of this disorder that she has. Um, She also has Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, which is another type of rare seizure disorder. And cognitively, she's probably around 12 months old. So, you know, little did I know coming to work at this clinic when I would work with a lot of caregivers and families um, that I myself would be a caregiver. So she's 13 now, um, but she's probably around a 12-month-old cognitively. So we're doing everything for her, and she's dependent on us for all her daily activities. You know, it's definitely been a rocky road at times. And I think today I just really want to help other caregivers just kind of recognize and know that there's always the potential to get burnout um, and just how to try to prevent that. Because burnout's not just like a cold that you get. You know, it's kind of like a slow leak in your tire. You don't really notice it till all of a sudden you're a flat tire and you can't run anymore. Um, and just some other tips on 
how to elicit the relaxation response and how important it is to take care of ourselves. Um, and I know, you know, just seeing some of the questions that I know it seems really hard when you're really pressured for time most of the time. Um, but just to give some tips on that and just some other things, um, you know, and just that we do become so focused, you know, on the person we're caring for that sometimes we neglect our own needs. Um, and just what I see in clinic too. So I'm just going to kind of speak to that and just some of the things that I help do to help relax um, and just some resources that maybe are helpful for caregivers as well. Great. Thank you, Catherine. We, we appreciate your being here. Um, Tina, would you like to uh, say a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, again, my name is Tina Robbins. I'm from Central Florida. Um, my daughter is Sarah, and um, she was born with also a seizure disorder, um, and she's 17 now, so she was born in 2001. Unfortunately, um, she was struck with the transverse myelitis in 2011 um, and has problems from T10 down. So we were caregivers really from the day of birth forward and then had to really change gears when the process hit her um, into more of um, caring for her in a wheelchair and tending to um, needs that were not were not there when she was born that are, that are there now. Um, so that's been something I've been doing full time since 2012, shortly after retiring for my career as a domestic law practitioner. Um, I retired in 2012, like you said, and I needed to solely focus on um, caring for her, um, transitioning my family from um, a life with an able child to a disabled child as far as walking was concerned. And there was all of a sudden a, a lot more responsibilities involved. She also has cognitive deficits um, as related to the brain disorder that she was born with. Um, and I would say Sarah's probably cognitively about three, three to five maybe, um, some issues. So the process on top of that um, was very challenging for our family, both our immediate family and our extended family. And um, I had gone to law school shortly after graduating college and learned how to become an advocate for others. Um, little did I know that my career for advocating for others was going to turn into um, a family career of advocating for my daughter and her needs. So um, I have welcomed the opportunity, of course, to stay home, take care of her, teach my family how to take care of her. Um, but as the last speaker said, it's so incredibly necessary to care for yourself so that you can be a good caregiver. And I think that's going to be a key element, a key theme to today's um, conversation with the listeners, because if you don't take care of yourself, you really are not going to be able to give your 100% effort to the, to the person that you're caring for. So I would like to offer any personal information, any, anything that would be necessary to help someone get through the initial caregiving phase, learning how to be a caregiver, um, what it takes to ask for help, what it takes to turn to others to ask questions even when you think you should be expected to know them because there was a lot of information that I didn't know when my daughter was first diagnosed that I learned later that I wish I had learned when she was first diagnosed um, and um, just here to help anybody get through those initial struggles and then even to answer any questions about you know as time passes what you're to expect and how to prepare and especially as the, the child gets older or the loved one gets older it's a different scenario to take care of an 11 year old that became paralyzed as opposed to now 17 almost 18 year old about to enter into adulthood um, so it's whatever anybody needs I'm, I'm happy to help and answer those questions great thanks Tina we're glad that you're here too um, we'll move on to Cindy could you give us a little bit more of your background sure um, I'm a peer mentor for the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation and I'm active with disability nonprofits I've also been a lifelong caregiver. And what I mean by that is I started when I was a teenager. Disabilities and babysat often. At 19, I managed my first group home for men with developmental disabilities. After that, I worked at a state institution in direct care. And then at the same institution, I later taught literacy. And that's where I worked when my daughter Beth was paralyzed in a car accident. 
She has a C6-7 uh, spinal cord injury. And for the next four years, I, I quit my job, well, right away, I quit my job at the institution, and I was her full-time caregiver for the next four years. Uh, after that, I also managed uh, more group homes. The, and even though I had experience with disability and physical disabilities before my daughter was injured, um, being a caregiver for her was the hardest thing I've ever done. I've um, been writing about it and as a peer mentor, uh, trying to reach out and, and help moms with kids who have new injuries. But I'm also um, I'm passionate about helping or trying to uh, share the news that um, you know, there there always is hope. And sometimes as a caregiver, sometimes as a parent, you know, it's it's hard to see that. And I'm I'm hoping that I can do my small part, uh, not only with this podcast, but uh in a larger sense, I'm doing a lot of writing that might help people um through a, through tough times they have with caregiving or other situations. That's great. And and thank you, Cindy and, and Tina and Catherine, all of you. You all obviously have a wealth of knowledge based not only on formal learning and education and work, but also, um, and maybe more importantly, in your direct experience caring for, for children and adults with, with uh, disabilities. And so thank you again for your time and, and, and your expertise to be on here. Um, and so I'll jump in. There are a, a number of questions that came from the community, a lot of them that that uh, share the same spirit. Um, and so I'll start just from the beginning. The the first question that came in and, and probably the first thing to come, to come up is, my loved one was recently diagnosed and I've never been a caregiver before in this way. What are some basics that I should know going into this? Uh, Tina, would you have something, uh, uh, an answer for that? Sure. Um, so basically, when your loved one is first diagnosed, um, there's a lot of information being thrown at you. Um, I know when we left the hospital, it was, um, okay, here's your daughter's wheelchair, and why don't you go ahead and get her some physical therapy. So um, the, probably I want to start with the mistake that I made, and the mistake that I made was probably um, not asking enough questions and looking into resources immediately. So it took us a while, of course, as your family, you're processing what's happened to your child or your loved one, and the processing time alone can be very emotionally, mentally pulling. Um, and if you go ahead and begin the process of looking for others that are in a similar situation to you and, and asking questions about how they got started, what were some of the steps they took, um, of course, the Transverse Lena Association being one of those organizations that can help you get started with resources. Um, but immediately jump into, okay, there have got to be other people that have been through this situation. And instead of trying to recreate the wheel, go ahead and ask, what are some of the things you put in place in your family to help you get through a difficult time? You have to deal with not only the physical being of the person that um, has the disorder, but also the mental well-being. And you have to help your own family and your family members try to process what's happening. So take time as a family to process what's going on. Um, take time with your spouse or if it's a child, your, your significant other to speak about what's going to happen now in the next six months, in the next year. Um, how's it going to change your life plan? Um, what is it that you need to get done and kind of have like a plan what's going to happen now in the next month what do we need to accomplish in the next six months and what are we looking to do in the next year but like I said look for resources to help you do that um, and and take it slow take take time to process um, there's going to be a little bit of possible grieving at first as far as what is that that loved one what did they lose now did they lose their ability to walk did they lose the ability to use their hands kind of process that and then take steps take steps slowly don't 
rush into the first therapeutic facility you find, um, take time to research what therapy facilities are going to be best for your family, which ones are located near your house, which ones um, your insurance may cover, not cover, but kind of take steps to prepare for what, what is going to happen in, in the near future and then kind of go from there. But um, as a caregiver, um, you have to uh, really process what's what's going on with that loved one in addition to you. You guys have to work together as a team. So um, go slow with the process. Um, not everything has to be accomplished the next day. And um, really take time to talk about it with your family and um, what's going to be expected of them. Um, in my case, I was dealing with three other children that had to process what was going on as well. And I knew that my role from a working mom was changing into a stay-at-home mom, and I needed to be able to help them deal with what was going on as well um, and know that my job as a caregiver was um, going to be something they had to adjust to as well. So um, I, my loved one was recently diagnosed, but some of the basics are taking time, research, processing, preparing your family, and just taking it one step at a time. Yeah, just not getting too too ahead of yourself. Um, Correct. And also, but at the same time, kind of being future oriented and and not not too too focused on um, everything that's happening right now. But being organized and and thinking, you know, stepwise, we need to keep moving forward. Um, and I, uh, as kind of a follow up to that question, um, I imagine that it can be very different different um, when you're the caregiver of uh, a child who now needs to have, um, uh, is, now has a disability and needs care versus uh, an adult, maybe a spouse or a parent or a sibling that, that you might now have to be the caregiver of. And I wonder um, what are the similarities and differences, I guess mainly differences that one would need to to keep in mind if you're the now the primary caregiver unexpectedly of an adult. Um, I wonder, uh, Cindy, if if you have something to say about that. Sure. I think that there was a big difference in in my experience from being a caregiver for an adult and being a caregiver for um, not only a, a teenager but um, a family member, so that I, um, I believe there can be differences even with adults, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's a family member or um, or if it's something like in my case where you're working in an institution or in a group home uh, with someone who's not a family member. Um, however, I, there's a, a, a lot of similarities too. I think the bottom line is how um what i always tried to uh, keep in mind in in all of the situations was um how would i want um my son or daughter to be treated whether or not it, i was working with a you know a, whoever i was working with if it was an adult in a group home um how would i you know i tried to provide the same level of care that i i would for for a family member that all often um i often fell short um not by lack of trying but resources staff and those sorts of things but to get back to um probably most most of the listeners here are um probably uh caregiving or uh in a situation where it's a family member um, I found that to be extremely challenging. Uh, kind of like Tina was saying with that initial time dealing with whatever the um, the crisis is or the disability, um, it's overwhelming. And you, there's so many hats that you wear. <laughs> if you're a caregiver for uh, a family member, because it's not only them, it's other members of the family, it's you. Uh, it's, uh, you know, caring for, uh, trying to <laughs> care for yourself as well. Um, 
but, but definitely uh, so many challenges with all of those situations. One thing that I, I, I thought I, I wanted to, I thought of that I wanted to throw out there too at this point is in new caregiving situations, um, something that I wish I had done uh, when my daughter was injured that I did not do is, is taking a little more time with that step Tina mentioned with research and with um, making sure that the, um, that my daughter was in the, the best possible place where she needed to be, especially in cases where people need <clears throat> to be inpatient, an inpatient at a rehab facility for an extended time. Um, that's definitely worth taking the time uh, to to be where you need to be. I guess that's that's um, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, uh, it sounds like the, the the big thing when when starting out on this on this journey when you're a new caregiver is is taking time to to find all of your resources, knowing what's out there, and and um, and trying not to rush into too many decisions too fast, but trying to take your time mm -hmm. and, and process as you go through. Um, right. I, yeah. Uh, I'll move on to to uh, uh, another kind of question moving in this direction. Um, so to Catherine, a question that came in, and a lot of them kind of fall into this vein as, as kind of we've been talking about and moving into about kind of how you care for yourself as a caregiver. Um, but, but first, what would you, how would you answer this question? Do you have any tips for maintaining a healthy relationship when caregiving for a loved one? And I would say that that would extend not only to, for your relationship with the, the loved one who you might be caring for, but for the others uh, in the family or other loved ones who might also be affected and, and maintaining healthy relationships with them as well. Catherine, can you speak to that? Okay, sure, yes. Um, and you're right, it does you know, touch the whole family um, when someone is diagnosed with a chronic illness um, or even when there's acute illness. Um, so I would say, you know, that just everybody in the family recognizing that they, everybody has a right to feel the way that they feel. And we don't want to suppress our emotions because that can just make us really irritable and feel sick and to keep the communication just simple and clear. You know, I think we expect people to read our minds a lot <laughs> and that's just um, not possible. Um, and just knowing what you are and aren't responsible for, I think is really key um, and what you can and cannot control because you really can't control another person's thoughts or feelings or behaviors you can only really learn to control the way you think, feel, and act. Um, and that empathy is really healthy, but feeling guilty for how someone else is, is feeling or expressing their pain is, is not your responsibility. And just recognizing that your family is gonna have you know, different coping mechanisms and emotional styles you know, that may differ from, from each other. And I would also say just to release yourself from expectations of being perfect. You know, we don't have to be perfect to feel happy and good. And to just focus on making progress. And, you know, as far as worrying and concern, you know, focusing on like how and what can you do? Like, how can you make a situation better or not? You know, why am I in this situation? Um, and just kind of back to what y'all are saying, like, that there is kind of this ongoing grief um, when your child or your loved one is diagnosed with, you know, a really serious um, illness. And just, I just want to say one other thing too, back on the, um, what y'all were talking about earlier is just that one of the things I would say is that it's okay to get another opinion, which I eventually did for my daughter, but it probably took me about eight years to do that. Um, but it's okay to do that, and you're looking to your medical team for guidance, and you know they should want input from others, um, so you can make the best decision you can, and just recognizing that you're doing the best you can. 
I think it's really important as, if your parents to plan time together, date nights, and even a date night with your other kids. You know, maybe spending some extra time with them. Um, so everything is not focused around the illness all the time. You know, just trying to nurture those times um, that aren't, you know, about the illness and focusing on what can be done. But again, just really clearly defining your property lines. And I'm sure everyone's heard this, but just putting on your oxygen mask first. Um, and again, even a simple thing, if things are getting heated or tense in the house, just maybe go outside or just get some fresh air and just a change of scenery can help. And just, and that the information is really the foundation for, for coping effectively, you know, with everything else building on that. And like they were saying, just getting as much information as you can. And, you know, as far as with the burnout, sometimes we have to, other people are going to see it in us that we don't see. And I think that's certainly been my case. Um, and my husband recognizing that I'm just completely fried and just not even really realizing it. And just some of the, you know, questions you can ask yourself, are you getting a good night's sleep? Are you keeping up with act social activities that you enjoy? You know, are you feeling really irritable? Are you feeling overwhelmed? Um, and sometimes we just got to rely on other people to tell us, you know, and be willing to hear their feedback that, yeah, we are getting kind of burnt out and we need to, you know, take into consideration some steps we can take to, you know, make some changes, you know, and those may be little steps, but, you know, doing that. And it's uh, always surprising to me, just in my own experience um, and in my observation of others, how far those small things um, can go when, when you try to, to implement them and you're focused on those. And I, and I think it's, it's important what uh, what you're getting at, Catherine, of um, focusing on the things that you can control and not the things that you can't. Um, you can't change the diagnosis. You can't change the things that have happened, but you can focus on um, what can I do to to um, make make things better right now and in the future. What are the things that could be affecting my burnout? Am I getting sleep? The things that we can control and can identify as being uh, uh, things that we can be proactive about. And that kind of moves moves into um, uh, a lot of what you were saying into another question uh, that I want to direct to um, uh, to Cindy. Uh, there's a question that, that came up. Um, you know, we're told uh, that taking care of oneself makes, makes you a better caregiver and you can't care for another if you're not taking care of yourself. But how do you find the time and how do you balance uh, taking care of yourself with not feeling guilty for taking that time, um, especially with how physically and emotionally exhausting being a caregiver can be. Cindy, do you have um, uh, something to, to say for, for that? Yes. Um, for me, after my daughter was injured, it was, it be quickly became for me uh, a mental health issue. <laughs> Honestly, um, I had a life, I've had a long history of depression even before the accident. And after, um, that was a huge problem, uh, a really deep depression and anxiety. And I also had an added component to that, which actually I've met some other moms uh, in a similar situation. It was, my daughter was injured in a car accident, and I was driving, and I fell asleep at the wheel. So there was a guilt kind of thrown into that mix uh, for me. But even without the guilt, just putting that to the side, um, I'm, I'm meeting a lot of caregivers who, in addition to all the normal challenges of caregiving, are really struggling with mental health issues. And I guess I, I, I would like to encourage people who are having any kind of lingering depression, anxiety, and, and they are a full-time caregiver, or, any, or anyone with lingering anxiety and depression, 
to really seek help for that, to really, you know, talk to your doctor, uh, uh, educate yourself about it so it doesn't feel like a weakness or a, uh, a failing on your part. Uh, that's something that I definitely felt at the time that I just wasn't strong enough. So, yes, there's uh, a huge component to this, you know, the, the person we're caring for, the, who has either uh, whatever um, they're dealing with, uh, whether it's a transverse myelitis or an injury or other health challenges. And that they're actually, for the caregiver, that's the focus. But I'd like to, to really bring out that the mental health of the caregiver is very important and it's often overlooked. And I think that taking it seriously, asking for help is a very important piece of that in um, um, moving forward and um, I guess being the best you know, caregiver you can be too because obviously that makes it so much harder to do anything. Mm -hmm. I think you're exactly right, Cindy. Um, Mental health generally is is overlooked by by a lot of us in in our society or put on the back burner. And and I think it's very, very easy when when one is in this kind of position where you're now a caregiver to 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 fall into depressions or increase anxiety or or even um just helping manage a loved one or the the rest of the family who might be having uh, issues with that uh with depression anxiety right. or other mental health issues mm-hmm. um yeah. it's it's not something that's always expected or or um uh you know it it's not as intuitive of how to deal with it and and being able to be transparent and and communicative about your feelings and and honest is is a big step in moving in the right direction. Just in in my experience um, with that, uh, and uh, um, kind of in that same vein, when you're whether it be for one's own mental health or the mental health of of a loved one, or just uh, needing uh, physical and, and and resource you know resource needs. There's a question that came in. Um, and I think it's it's interesting to, to to say it as it was written. I'm stubborn and independent, and know my child and his diagnosis like no other. How do I ask for help, and who should I ask? How do you give up control to trust another with your loved one's well-being? Um, I wanted to direct this to Tina to see if she had uh, any any advice uh, for that question. Okay, I think it's really a two-part question, um, and it says that you know your, your child's diagnosis like no other. How do I ask for help? Um, it's tough because um, you do as a parent, I'm going to speak as a parent because I'm taking care of my child. As a parent, you do think that you know your child best. And especially for my spouse and I, um, we we feel that we know they're the best, but we still turn to each other to um, look for tips on, you know, how could I handled that situation differently how can I have um, how could you have handled that situation differently and I think um, for um, how do I ask for help Um, I think the key thing is making sure that you you communicate with each other and ask each other for help and if you if you are by yourself and you're caring for a child or a loved one I think it's key to look for other people in that situation maybe um, another person taking care of their sibling or taking care of a parent um, and don't be embarrassed to ask because you feel like you should know your child best um, or you should know your sibling or your loved one best but maybe there's a situation they've already handled and dealt with and you're just thinking well um, I, 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 would, I should know how to handle this I, I should know better I should have learned this already but you can't know everything and you have to keep an open mind to hearing from others how they may have handled that situation. Especially with my daughter, there was bowel and bladder issues that we were dealing with. Um, she was getting frequent UTIs, and I, I was at a loss. We had seen doctors. We had um, looked for different equipment and machinery. And finally, I had asked another parent 
Um, I know that your daughter must be going through this similar situation. How did you handle it? Um, and they gave me a plethora of information on what they did with their child. Some of it worked for my child, some of it didn't. But it took years for me to be able to ask for another parent for help or um, – because even doctors, they see you for such a short period of time, and you think they know your child, but they're dealing with so many other patients. But it really is, you know, a different perspective when you're the parent and you're and you're looking for a solution for your your you know the person that you're caregiving for your child, and you just you you sometimes think, well, I'm the mother, um, I gave birth to this child, I should really know the ins and outs of how to care for her. But this is a new being a caregiver is a new a new type of um, direction. You have to be able to be open-minded, be able to learn new techniques, be able to listen to others that have been in this situation. You be not be embarrassed to ask the doctor questions that you think she should already know the answers to. Um, for me, um, in my house, I was always about routine for my other children, routine for Sarah. And coming out of the routine to ask people, okay, well, how do I do this a little differently? Um, how this is going to throw off her schedule or, or, or whatever it is we were dealing with. And to be able to listen to others on how they did their routine now that they've been caring for a, a child with a spinal cord injury for longer than you have, it was a big jump for my husband and I to be able to ask those questions um, or be able to go to the doctor and say, you know what, I'm, I'm at a loss. I don't know what to do to help with the UTI or whatever else is going on. So I think it's key to um, – able to ask questions, um, to not be stubborn, to kind of release yourself from the anxiety of, well, I'm the parent and I should know all of it. Um, these children that have spinal cord injuries, didn't, it didn't come with a manual when we left the hospital. So we are always learning. I'm seven years into being a primary caregiver for her, and I'm still learning. Every single day, I learn something new from either another parent or a research article or something that I'm I'm looking for the answer to. So being stubborn kind of has to leave the vocabulary. You have to open yourself up because it's only going to benefit your child if you, the more knowledge and information you have, whether that's from another person or from a doctor or from an article or whatever it is that you're using as a research tool. Um, it only will benefit your child's well-being if you can learn from others. Um, and I had to learn that. It took me years to learn that. But if I could speak to that issue, I would say, just lose that word from your vocabulary, loosen yourself up a little bit, be a little bit more open to um, hearing how others handled that situation. I'm looking at the second half. Um, so also the, the back to the issue of caregiving for yourself. If you are not in your best emotional and physical well-being, um, it's very going to be very difficult to take care of another person. So as the last speaker said, do what you need to do to care for yourself physically and mentally so that you can give 100% to the person that you are caring for because that's what they need, that's what they deserve, and they're going to progress that way. If you are not at your best, you are not going to help them progress. So do whatever it is you need to do. Like she said before, a long walk, a small vacation, an overnight a dinner date, um, even if it's after your child goes to bed, a quick movie, something to take your mind off of what you're doing all day and clear your mind, um, keep yourself healthy, try to eat right, join groups online um, for people, for other caregivers, and, and do what you can to keep yourself in the best physical and mental state because now this is your job. Your job is to keep yourself healthy so you can care for that loved one. Yeah, I, I think all of that's very important. And uh, what struck me, something that I that I that I always tell myself is don't don't should yourself to death. You shouldn't try not to to say I should be doing this or I shouldn't be doing that. And 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 managing your own expectations of yourself and, and be open to help from others uh, is is a, a major step in in not only taking care of yourself but taking care of those who you need to take care of, your your children or your spouse or, or whoever whoever it might be. Um, I think I think that's very important. And and knowing that uh, in terms of the small steps, the things that, that we can do, like you and and I believe um, Catherine and and Cindy were saying, uh, whether it be that walk or that date night, 
um, uh, exercising, whatever the case may be, nobody can tell you exactly what you need to what you need to to rejuvenate yourself, to revive yourself. Um, uh, that takes some self reflection. And what is what what Tina might need is not necessarily what Catherine might need. And and being able to to reflect and, and think about what you as an individual are going to need to to keep yourself strong mentally and physically to 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 better care for um, your child or 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 whoever you might need to be taken care of. Um, I wanted to, there's one question that came in I thought was very interesting uh, that I don't think many people um, think too much about when they're, when they're in the midst of, of this kind of situation where they're now a caregiver. I want to direct this toward Catherine. Um, but as a caregiver, what do I need to do to prepare for an event in which I'm no longer able to be a caregiver for my loved one? And I could see that as being maybe um, something has happened to me and my health is failing and, and I can't do what I used to be able to do to take care of my loved one. Or maybe even I have a child with a chronic illness and, and now they're becoming an adult and, and uh, have certain expectations um, that, that I am more hands-off uh, with their care. And so I wonder, Catherine, if you have any advice, um, uh, anything to speak to, to that of when, uh, how to prepare for not being a caregiver anymore. Okay. Well, I think some of the things, you know, I totally agree with all, all things Cindy and Tina have been saying. And some of the best things I've learned about have been from other parents. Because, um, you know, there, I didn't even know about a certain program here in Texas until another parent told me about it. And, and I am a social worker. I've been doing this 20 years. Um, but there is a great website. I just want to tell people about this and make sure I shared this. It's called MedicaidWaiver.org. And you can look up in your state what Medicaid waiver programs there are. So for me, there's the Medically Dependent Children's Program, which is what we have Riley on, but there's different programs in every state. Um, and there, you know, some are based on the child's income, some are based on the family income, um, but that might be a way to prepare, like if you don't have any help, you know, can you get enough help into the home to, you know, where that person is able to stay at home and getting that, um, you know, those caregiver hours set up or, you know, reaching out to private agencies or just finding someone on your own that you trust, which is our current caregiver we found on our own. And she's paid through the program, but we found her. And, you know, just, you know, as far as giving up the control, like you just kind of have to, you have to let somebody else come in to help you. Um, and I, you may want to consider even meeting with an attorney just to look at like uh, Medicaid rules and, you know, if there's and if ever any possibility of someone needing nursing care in a facility, you know, you want to make sure you kind of know what what is going to be entailed there. And this was something I just recently ordered. It's, there's two of them. There's one called a peace of mind planner. You can kind of put everything in there. And there, if you have a sense of humor, you think it's funny, there's one that's the same, but it's called I'm dead, now what? Um, and you can put in there like info about your belongings, your affairs, your personal wishes, where important documents are. And I just felt like it was important for me to have something like this. You know, if something happened to me, that they would have all this information about Riley and where important things are for me and how, you know, where is she on like Medicaid waiver lists and who to contact and who her case manager is. Um, and then as far as advanced planning, this is not valid in Texas, but there is this organization called fivewishes.org and you can do your advanced directives on there. It is a legal document in most states and you assign a healthcare agent, what kind of medical treatment you want, what you want other people to know. But again, I think just planning ahead and possibly meeting with an attorney that is a special needs attorney or a Medicaid law attorney who's going to understand the ins and outs of trying to continue care for somebody because you don't want to knock them out of a program that they might have qualified for otherwise. 
you know, and I went to this program a long time ago, and he basically said, whatever you think, whatever is good financial planning for your regular kid that doesn't have anything wrong is going to be the opposite for your other kid, you know, your special needs kid. So just, you know, meeting with someone who understands the financial planning of that for a special needs child, um, but same for when an adult in a Medicaid attorney law is going to know all the ins and outs and how to plan for that. But again, if you can get help at home, you might be able to get it through some of these waiver programs that are available in every state, but they're all different. So that's why you can go to the site and check out what's available. That's, that's all very good information that is really actionable information. Um, I, you, you um, Catherine spoke about Medicaid law attorneys and whatnot. I wonder if, if Tina, as uh, a former practicing attorney, uh, if you have anything to add to what Catherine was saying. So I was practicing in the law in the family law division, and um, basically I've had to learn as I go um, because it wasn't. I was advocating um, for children who are going through their parents' divorce, and um, that's basically was my focus, but. As I had a special needs child and all of a sudden there was paralysis involved and there was going to be a lot more in her future, I had to do the research as well. So we started with um, a special needs trust, and there are attorneys that you can Google special needs trusts, and you can get a list in your area of the attorneys that handle the drafting of those trusts. And I would definitely call, see if they have a free consultation. If not, they may charge a fee to meet with them and talk to them about what you can do to prepare your prepare for your future, for that child's future without you. And it's a very, very difficult call to make. It's a very difficult meeting. Um, we don't like to think about what's going to happen when we're not here. It's probably the scariest element of my life, at least. Um, but if you go ahead and meet them, you're going to feel so much better about um, hearing the information you need to hear about what needs to be put into the trust, um, how your child's going to be provided for, um, you may need to uh, re research guardianship attorneys in your area as well. Um, guardianship attorneys will meet with you and talk about what needs to be signed after the child's 18, what programs a child is going to be qualifying for as they approach the age of 18. Um, and so there would be two separate. There would be the guardianship attorney um, to handle that, and there would be um, an attorney to handle the special needs trust. And they're very specialized in that area. So if you call the offices, make sure that you ask Specifically, does the attorney handle the drafting of special needs trusts? And if they say yes, go ahead and make the appointment. Um, same thing with the guardianship attorneys. Tell them what you're trying to accomplish in the phone call. Be very upfront with the person who answers the phone as far as what you're looking to do, what questions you're looking to get answered, because you don't want to waste your own time that we know we don't have that much of. And you don't want to waste the attorney's time, and I don't want them charging you for um, information that you're sitting there and you're like, I don't need this information. This is what I needed. So be very upfront when you make the call. Go ahead and, and tell them what it is you're looking for and see if they can help you. And if not, if they say, well, that's not something I would handle, ask them who they would refer you to um, and, and, and go from there. And sometimes if you're in a small city, you may have to go into the big city that's closest to you to find someone that's specialized in that area. And you are going to provide as much information as you can to the attorney so that when they draft these documents for you, everything is in there that needs to be covered. Then you're going to review it with your, your spouse or, or your family members. If you happen to be leaving some guardianship to a family member, you need to discuss that in advance with your family members. If something happens to me before the child's 18, will you be the guardian for this child? Will you be the guardian for my child? Knowing and considering the fact that there's now a lot more involved in caring for your child. So that has to be something you need to discuss with your family or that person that you may be asking to take guardianship for if you have family that would be willing to do that for you. Um, and, and have an open discussion before you even meet with the attorneys so that you can um, understand uh, what you're expecting of your loved ones and what they're expecting of you. And then um, every year or so, I would go through that document and make sure it's still relevant, make sure that your child hasn't um, come down with an, uh, an, another serious condition that may have been related to the underlying condition, um, make sure that it's just updated with all information, bank accounts, things like that. Just people's financial situation may change from year to year or every few years. So you always want to make sure that you're giving the attorney the most up-to-date information. And um, because 
if and when that time comes, and unfortunately none of us really know when that time is, you want to make sure that you have the most updated information for the guardian to uh, move forward with caring for your child. It's all very, very good information. And if, um, if one chooses to, to go and, and speak with a lawyer for whatever reason in terms of preparing for the future, sounds like it's, it's very important to be as honest and transparent and direct and, and what, what the plan is, what you're, what you're looking to accomplish. Um, and to not be afraid to, to go and go and ask and, and see what, what can be done. Um, we're getting closer to the end of our hour here, and there's uh, well, there are a number of questions that that um, that are still left unanswered, and we could talk about this for hours. But I wanted to um, dive into this one one last question that I wanted to ask Cindy, um, that any anybody any of you three could could help answer. But uh, do you or should you share with your loved one what it takes to be a caregiver? Do you let them see or know when it can be difficult? Of course, this depends on age and other factors, um, but as caregivers, we also tend to be protectors, even from our own struggles and emotions. And I wonder, Cindy, if you have thoughts on, on I guess, how much one should communicate as a caregiver with their loved ones or the person who they're caring for the difficulties that they have as a caregiver. Yes, definitely. Um, first, with loved ones who are not the person being cared for, um, for example, if you're caring for a child and um, you have other family members, my advice would be to not share with the person you're providing care for. Even if it's an adult who is particularly difficult, um, even in that case, I, w I, would, I would still not share what it takes to be a caregiver. In that case, I would probably um, try to work with a counselor, you know, on positive approaches. But I, I do feel strongly that it's important for caregivers to share with other family members. That's something that I was not able to do, and I wish that I had. I think that my uh, personal process of um, uh, recovering from a deep depression and anxiety would have been a faster process if I had been talking to my husband about it, to and and to some degree with my other children, but obviously not to the to the same extent. I think it is very important and to ask for help um, and to have a support person or maybe a good friend that you can um, vent to or maybe another, another mom or dad. But it is important to share and to ask for help if you need it. Mm. Yes, it is very important. Tina and Catherine, do, do either of you have, have anything to, to add to, to, this, to this question of how much do I share with, with my loved ones about my struggles? Um, for mm -hmm. me, with Sarah, it's, it's difficult because um, she has cognitive delays that, that she really wouldn't understand a lot of what I would be communicating. But um, so obviously with her in that situation, we don't share what it takes to be a caregiver. It's just part of her daily life. It's just how she knows it. It's, you know, for her, she's, we've been her primary caregiver since birth due to the underlying brain disorder. So for her, it's just another day for her. Uh, Mom and dad are taking care of her. And she wouldn't understand if we were to express to her the difficulties or the stress. Um, I think in her own way, she can see uh, when mom is burning out or when dad is burning out, if we have to step away. I think she can understand a little bit um, about maybe feeling that if, you know, we're in a situation where maybe she's having an irritable day or, you know, she can maybe feel it. And I, I think that's okay. I think it's okay to step away from the child if, if, if the child, you know, if, if you're feeling stress or anxiety. I, I think it's okay for them to see that mom needs a break or dad needs a break um, because at the, at the end of the day, that, that caregiver is always going to be there for them. 
as far as sharing with other loved ones, and I'm not really sure if the person who wrote the question meant other loved ones in your family. Um, I happen to have a close-knit family, thank God. That's who got me through, got us through the diagnosis and still gets us through week to week on caring for her. I think it's important to share with them. I think it's, I think like the previous um, panelist said, to an extent, um, we share what we go through. Um, you don't want your stresses to be other people's stresses. But if you want to share, you know, if you had a difficult day or there was an extra seizure or, you know, there was issues with bowel and bladder, I think it's okay to share to an extent uh, because people want to help you. They want to be there for you. But it's, it's difficult for your loved ones to understand exactly what it is to care 100% of the time, hour to hour. No one's really going to understand that except you and your spouse or whoever it is that's helping you if you have anybody helping you. So we share, but we share in a limited to a limited extent, um, because we feel that this this is you know this has been placed on us. This is our journey, and um, and as far as my children are concerned, my other children, they see it day to day. So um, they see when mom and dad are getting a little bit stressed, or they see if Sarah's having a difficult day, maybe more more difficult on us, and they learn. They learn how to handle the situation. They learn how to cope with the situation. In our family, we've put. Um, We've put other people in their life so that they can speak to speak to them if it's been a difficult day handling Sarah's issues because whatever it is that child's going through that has the spinal cord, the other children are being affected as well, and they need to know how to cope. So I, I don't go to an extent where I discuss it with them, but they see it. They live it, so they do, they do understand it, and I don't think the outside world really um, understands that the siblings are affected almost as much as the parents. Um, but, you know, our job is to make sure that they have someone to speak to, that we're here to listen to them and help them cope with it um, because, again, they're living it. So um, they, they're the ones that are going to need to you know, speak to somebody, talk to somebody, and have someone understand what it is they're going through. Yeah. And, and Catherine, do you have anything to add? Um, well, I would just say, um, you know, I like the idea of counseling and just focusing on what we can control inside of ourselves and how we feel and react and just learning those stress-reducing skills, you know, learning mindfulness, eliciting that relaxation response every day, even if it's just for 15 minutes, which could be through exercise, listening to music, um, progressive relaxation, muscle relaxation, guided meditation. There's a really great app that's free that you can put on your phone called Insight Timer and listen to some guided meditations um, and just, you know, recognizing, like in my situation, my daughter doesn't know, you know, that what we're doing for her. Um, but I would think, you know, as adults that are being cared for, you know, a lot of times what I see is that they already feel like they're a burden. Um, to their loved ones. So I think I would just be kind of careful about that and just kind of focusing more on yourself and how regulating your own emotions. And you can do that in counseling or with, you know, if there's a close friend that you feel comfortable talking to, but in counseling, it's safe, it's objective, you know, you can learn how to manage your emotions and, you know, just maybe even vent about, you know, how hard it can be. And but again, you know, you are not responsible for other people's reactions. You're just responsible to communicate honestly and with love. And another thing that people could do is to build their own self-compassion. You have compassion for yourself. And there is, this is another um, resource that's called selfcompassion.org. And you can do, take a quiz to kind of see how much compassion you have for yourself. And then she has several exercises, guided meditations, and little exercises, you can writing exercising exercises on just how to build that self-compassion for yourself and not be so hard on yourself. Yes, all, all of that I think is very valuable. And, and I think my, my big takeaway from, from everything that I've heard, heard you three talk about in this hour and, and, my own experience and observation is to remember that you know no one is an island uh we there are resources and and people loved ones who are there and, and want to help 
um, whether it be you know mental and behavioral health and counseling or or legal and community resources or just looking at you know inside your own home to your your spouse your partner your your friends and family um, don't be afraid to say I need help and and that I'm having problems and issues there there are resources and and, and people there to help and I uh, we're at the end of our hour here and like I said there's so much more that can be discussed, and, and I hope that, that this conversation can start other conversations with people who are listening, uh, with your families, with your, your healthcare team. Um, and uh, I want to thank so much, uh, Cindy, Cindy, Tina, and Catherine, for your time and your expertise today as, um, as caregivers, as professionals, uh, as mothers. I want to uh, thank you again for your time, and thank you for the TMA and this forum that we have to discuss these kinds of issues for the community. Uh, thank you all again, and until next time, I hope everyone has a great week. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Have a great thank day. Thank you. Everybody.